calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. Today, we're talking about racism. It's a topic that's very personal to me. I grew up in South Africa and saw firsthand the brutal reality of apartheid's structural racism. Nowadays, America is reckoning with racism, whether it's individuals, organizations, or industries, including our own, the investment industry. Many are asking, what should our actions be to confront racism? As responsible investment professionals, what steps can we take as individuals? I turned to identity and diversity scholar Stephanie Creary, Assistant Professor of Management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, for some insights. Stephanie has been engaged in issues around race, diversity, and identity personally and professionally for years. She tells us why this time feels different. She also explains her race framework intended to encourage more people to talk about race in the workplace. Stephanie is a delight and had so much to share on the topic of race. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did and that you reflect on what Stephanie shared. Stephanie Creary, welcome. Uh, it is quite a time to have you on the podcast. It seems everyone in America, certainly in corporate America and even around the world, is having conversations now around race. So conversations that they may have been avoiding or ignoring or didn't have time for. So what a time to have this conversation. And thank you so much for taking some time to join us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd love to start actually by just asking how you're doing. I I'd imagine that you have felt a range of emotions over the past uh, month or so. Yeah, so it's certainly uh, a surreal experience. The way that I describe it is I'm simultaneously exhausted, yet energized and hopeful. And I'm not sure I would ever put those three words into a sentence, but I think it certainly explains how I'm feeling. I think it's really hard, right? I'm, I'm a black woman. So when I hear people talking about race, I hear people talking about me. Um, and so I have my own personal um, experiences that I'm dealing with, but I'm also an expert on the topic. So it means that my inbox is full, my phone is ringing off the hook. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've had to do a lot of introspection around how do I support other people in this work while I'm having my own experience. So it's, it's, been, it's been a challenge, but it's been a great opportunity. I'm just happy that we're here um, and that people are willing to listen and do the work, of course. Yeah. And there's a lot of work to do, that is, that is for sure. So you've been engaged in issues around race, diversity, identity, as you said, both personally and professionally for years. So many people say that this time feels different, that there's a real window for change right now. Does it feel different to you? 
Absolutely. I would say the biggest difference is that corporate America, and I just loosely use that term, but it means a lot to us, um, has taken a stance, right? And has said, we will not stand for racial injustice and equity, and we want things to change. And corporate America's conversation about diversity and inclusion for the last 20 to 30 years has not been about equity. Um, it has been about the business case. So the fact that there are all of these companies that many of them do have uh, quite a robust set of practices and policies and initiatives around the business case for diversity, they're talking about equity and justice with respect to race. I mean, obviously, they, they believe that it will also help them perform better, but that's in the background right now. So that's really different is, is, is sort of the sets of equ um, equity-based and moral arguments that, will, that are being made around diversity and inclusion. I think the other piece is, is certainly that we're talking about race, right? Um, this is a topic that is often relegated to the lawyers when there's a race-based discrimination lawsuit. And it is not a conversation that we, by and large, are comfortable having in, in the US and around the world. So that's what feels different, is this isn't a side conversation that black and brown employees are having. This is a conversation that everybody is trying to have, however elegantly or inelegantly. Well, that's actually a great segue because my, my next question was going to be on the topic of taboo. And we know that race is a taboo topic, not just in the US, but as you say, sort of globally. Um, and it, it sort of makes me think of something that's a, a Michelle Norris, who's an award winning journalist. She started the Race Card Project. You know, it's taboo, but we, we, ha we can't ignore it. And she has this great line. She says, race is a bright and throbbing vein in America's body politic. And to understand America, you have to understand its racial dimensions and its racial history, and you have to understand the reality of race today. But she also says there's real peril in engaging in these conversations, and it requires courage and the ability to be uncomfortable. So I know that you want people to talk about race, to sort of lean into that discomfort. And in fact, you've created something called the race framework. So give us the sort of the backstory. How did this come about and how can people use it? Um, and also I understand it first started out as individuals, but now corporations are, are using it. So sort of walk us through that. Yeah, so I created this framework this past February because I was asked to attend a symposium at Harvard Business School that specifically to offer the perspective of what it's like to engage in conversations about racial equity in a business school. And I'm in a business school and a conservative one at that. Um, and certainly how I engage people from practice and industry in my class as a way of helping to create cross-learning between academics and practice. And so this was something to help me organize my thoughts, but it also was done with the purpose of helping people to understand how much frameworks and structure are really important when you want to engage in conversations that may have been deemed taboo or, or difficult. So I decided to name this race because we have a hard time saying the word race. We actually have the har a hard time saying black, saying white, saying Asian, saying Hispanic and Latino, because many of us were taught 
that to be colorblind, right? And this is obviously after centuries of, of racism. We were taught that the that the that the remedy for racism was to not say anything about someone's race at all. And so we're in a bind, right? Because when we decide that we're not going to talk about it, sometimes that helps us think that it's no longer important. So the race framework was, let me just say it for you so that every time you talk about my framework, you have to say the word race, because that's part of the problem is, is, is in naming it. And then the R in the race framework is about is recognizing the anxiety that people have. And so I say uh, we need to reduce the anxiety that there is in talking about race by also recognizing that there is a lot of anxiety. So, so what you just said was perfect, right? This idea that it's taboo, we have to confront this large history. Um, I say people don't want to be called racist. And so all of that pre-work is so important when we talk about uh, race in the workplace. So that's what R. A is understanding that race swings this pendulum of being invisible or hyper-visible depending on your experiences. I'm a black African-American female professor at an elite business school. People notice my race and people comment on my race, usually in a very positive way, like you're the first black professor I've ever had. So I'm not running away from my race because somebody on a, on a regular basis is, tell, is reminding me that it is this. But I recognize that for my white colleagues and my students, this is not something that they're constantly engaging with. And so how do we normalize the experience of and a conversation about race so that it's not just invisible or, hy or hyper visible? The C is about you need help, calling on internal and external allies for help. Companies have been very good at knocking on the doors or sending emails to their black and brown colleagues in the last month, but not as good at understanding that those people are really tapped out and burnt out. So who else can you call? Well, that's when they call me, right? So, so the reality is there's lots of people out there with subject matter expertise. How do you lean on them for when you need help? But also understand that white, uh, white bosses and managers and, and leaders need to learn how to facilitate these discussions themselves. And finally, the E is expecting that you'll need to provide people with some answers. And I call answers frameworks and tools. So an example of that is this race framework, the idea that it is a, a it's sort of a step-by-step -step way of orienting yourself to what you need to do to prepare so that you can actually do the hard work around race. Great. Actually, before we go into the next question, I'm just going to quickly recap that for some of our listeners who might not have a pen at hand. So again, it's race. So R is reduce anxiety by talking about race anyway. A is accept that anything related to race is either going to be visible or invisible. C, call on internal and external allies for help. And E, expect you'll need to provide some answers, practical tools, skill-based skill frameworks like the one we just spoke about. So in fact, if, if a listener did want to find out more about that framework, where should they go for that? Yeah, so it's actually been published in a number of different outlets. So Knowledge at Wharton is, the, is a resource at the Wharton School, um, and it's titled How to Begin Talking About Race in the Workplace. So if you Google that through your search engine, it should, it should um, pop up, I've been told. And um, in the few weeks that it's been out, it's already uh, received more than uh, 20,000 views, which is incredible to me since this is the topic we're talking about. Uh, the World Economic Forum republished, uh, republished it as well. It's under a slightly different topic, but you can just pretty much Google the same top title and under World Economic Forum and you can see a reprint of it there. Uh, so that's where the tool exists. And, and what's been an interesting experience for me, because again, remember I told you I created this to organize myself to give a 10 minute talk. Um, and as I've put it out there and certainly contextualized it around the current experience, 
I've had companies contact me directly to say, okay, so what if we want to use this to structure X, Y, and Z initiative that we want to, um, that we want to do? Can we engage you in that? Or how do we do that? So I find that people are finding it useful, which as an academic is always great news, considering a lot of what we do, we have a hard time translating it to practice. So I'm just happy that this seems to be resonating with people. That is uh, great news. I'm curious. So when people do engage either groups or companies engage in these conversations, what are some of the themes that emerge for our sort of black and brown colleagues in terms of hurdles that they're had to overcome in terms of the workplace? Yeah, so there's always conversations about uh, career management, right? So hurdles around getting the support, the developmental support, the mentor and the sponsorship that they need, um, not having somebody who advocates openly for them for positions, because we know that as much as we would like to believe that organizations are a meritocracy, at some point you need people to advocate for your success. And so black and brown colleagues often lack those uh, resources. Uh, we often hear uh, things about uh, when it comes to the context of your, the day-to-day -day work experiences is feeling like they have a lot to contribute to the conversation, but being silenced in some capacity, um, being either talked over or just not um, engaged at all as a part of important initiatives. And these all become consequential. And then certainly around the context of right now, when we're, when we, whenever we have a period of heightened uh, sensitivity or experiences around race, we have to remember that our black and brown colleagues, again, as I explained my own experience, you feel it personally because that's your community and your family, um, broadly speaking, being projected in in all sorts of out, uh, outlets. And so what that does is that creates um, an extra set of, I think, stress, burdens, um, sensitivities, and then we have to show up and go to work, right? And so that's what, we, what I hear as companies have started talking about race is, is a greater appreciation for understanding the experiences right now for black and brown colleagues who are also having to figure out, do I or do I not bring up the fact that I just wanted to lay in bed this morning and not get out of bed? And so I appreciate that that's coming up as well, because I think for so long, we've tried to say, separate yourself from your work, just do your work and forget about that. But I can, I can say we all are having a hard time turning the other cheek right now. And I think because this has now, you know, the experience of race and racism in America has affected so many more of us. Now, I think there's greater understanding of what that experience has often felt like for black and brown employees. I'd love to spend a bit of time on culture. And I know that you do a lot of work on understanding culture, sort of firm culture and organizational culture. Can you just start by walking us through what culture means and some of the cultural norms that come up in your research, particularly as it applies to black and brown colleagues in the workplace and in the investment industry? Yes. So culture, uh, there's a great definition by Ed Schein, and he defines culture in terms of, you know, values and artifacts and certainly other types of norms that exist in the workplace. And so when we're thinking about what makes us us as an, as an organization, what defines our culture, it's the uh, values that we say are important if you want to belong here. It's the norms that we create around how you engage and how you present yourself that we expect from everyone. And it's also the, the, the way that things look and appear. That's the artifacts 
piece, right? So um, when we think about that, let's think about self-presentation as a way to boil down culture into how I show up at work. So that would mean from the perspective of values, I would have to use language and express to you um, as somebody else who works here that I believe the same things that you do. So if our value system here is a profit-driven mindset above everything else, I would have to communicate that I valued that same principle in order for you to believe that I belonged here. Um, when we come down to norms of engagement and you think about the investment industry, people have to be quite assertive, right? Sometimes aggressive is, is a way in which you make the deal. Passive people have a hard time uh, co competing in this industry. Um, and so for your black and brown colleagues, one of the things to think about is, do they have the same license to engage assertively and aggressively as their white peers? And what research tells us and the experiences of our black and brown colleagues in investments tells us is they do not, right? So black men and, and certainly black women as well have to give an appearance of being non-threatening. So toning down their, their, the volume at which they're speaking, uh, the ways, the, the gestures that they're using, all become very important so that they don't come across as in the, in the context of a black man being a threat um, or in the context of a black woman being angry. And then finally, the last piece I'll put on here is around what you wear and how you engage. And so I, I, I try to share the example so that people can understand how ridiculous this is, but um, black women's hair has been, has been a long standing challenge in corporate America and also in the financial industry where um, the expectation is that black women will look the same part as their white female peers, right? And there's an image around straight hair and makeup that is really important. But the reality is black hair does not typically grow out of the head straight, right? There is a, a, an act that has now been made into law in seven states in the U.S. It's called the Crown Act. And it's actually uh, intended to prevent or to prohibit discrimination against people because of their hair. So I have dreadlocks. And so this in many, in many companies would not be considered professional, but this law protects me from being um, either, it, it protects me from either being fired or from um, in the hiring process. It tells an employer, you cannot discriminate against me because of my hairstyle. So these are some of the cultural practices that exist in, in the industry, but also broadly in corporate America that uh, are differentially and in a disparate way impacting the success of black and brown employees. Can you talk a bit about uh, this idea of code switching? You've just sort of given examples, but the term code switching might not be well known to, to listeners or viewers. Yeah, so code switching is a term that comes out of the study of language, of linguistics. And so code switching, for example, would be um, if you speak, uh, I, I've seen this happen a lot. This actually happened to me the other day where I had popped into a Zoom breakout room just to say goodbye to some people who were in that room and I was in a different one. And they'd been speaking French because I caught it when I caught on. And as soon as they saw me pop in, they started speaking English because they were trying to sort of be inclusive. So the going back and forth between language. Um, another example of code switching, um, and, and this often happens in the context of how we think about um, black employees is there's a certain uh, vernacular 
or a certain uh, dialect that we might speak with our family members and with our friends that we don't use when we go to work because it would be considered unprofessional. Standard English, standard American English is the way to go. And so going back and forth between the standard American English and the language we use at home is really important. So that's where it comes from. And so the examples that I gave you around how like straightening my hair versus letting it be in its natural state is, is code switching, right? It, it, it's shifting uh, to meet whatever we perceive as the dominant norm. Um, you know, some industries, it's looked down upon, you know, there's always been these rules around women, right? Do we wear lipstick or not, right? Do you have loose hair or not? Should it be long or not? Should you wear a dress or a pantsuit? And so the decisions that you make to conform to the dominant norms, that's code switching as well. Great. So I'd love to switch a little bit uh, here to talk about the pipeline, uh, especially for talent. And one thing we keep hearing is, oh, we just can't find the right talent. And we're hearing a lot about what we hear in the U.S. call historically black colleges and universities or HBCUs. Um, and these are some of the country's strongest pipelines uh, for recruiting black talent. You've also mentioned that there's also a lot of bias associated with HBCUs when it comes to recruiting. And I'd love for you to just talk a bit more about that. Yes. Yeah. So what we have to remember is in the United States, there was a history of segregation and Jim Crow laws. And with these laws, it's a racial caste system, which basically said that black and white people could not attend the same educational institutions, in addition to a lot of other things, right? So let's just narrow it to educational institutions right now. And so because everyone deserves to be educated, you know, for thinking, forward thinking, progressive individuals created historically black colleges and universities so that black people could receive an education too, right? Um, what has happened over time is they have become these amazing engines of keeping alive not only the incredible disparities that exist by race in this country, they've also been engines of hope for many um, Black Americans. And there are also people who attend these colleges, by the way, who are not Black. Um, but this idea that out of all of this despair can be uh, doctors, lawyers, presidents, et cetera, so on and so forth. So at the you know, whereas they are a sign of their times, they've been incredibly important to the advancement of civil rights. Now, the reality is, is that they are a mystery to the average person, right? And so sometimes what happens, and psychology tells us, when we don't understand something, it's easy for us to paint it as inferior. Because if we don't know about it, clearly the idea is, is that it must not be important, right? And so what we're dealing with in the context of historically Black colleges and universities is one, because it's black, right? And we've, we've, we've constructed black as being inferior in this country for a very long time. So it seems inferior. And two, because we don't really know what goes on that way. And I'm using we generally, obviously. We don't know what goes on there. We have to assume that the education isn't as good as my school, as good as, as, as Wharton. When in reality, I just told you about how powerful an experience is for someone who goes to that institution. I've always gone to what we call predominantly white institutions, and I am quite envious of my brothers and sisters who've gone to HBCUs because they have such a clear, deeper understanding of their culture and their history and a positivity and a hope around it that I didn't have um, in my institution. So there's that. The other piece of it is that these colleges are often less expensive 
right? And they give better scholarships. And so a lot of times people choose to go to them because they are less expensive options. At the same time, because we don't, we broadly don't know a lot about them, it's easy for some of us to question the quality of education. And, and so I think what I have learned is that a lot of work needs to be done to help uh, the general public, public, especially white hiring managers, understand the value of an HBCU education if we're ever going to create these things as equal. Because they are, it's just we're dealing with the racism and the bias that we've already been dealing with, and we need to demystify um, unfortunately, HBCUs, in order for us to understand, go there, recruit from there, in addition to places like my university. So a lot of organizations are talking about increasing diversity, you know, reaching out to HBCUs, fighting racism. I suspect many organizations don't have a plan uh, or maybe very early on in formulating that plan. So where does one start? Like, what is at the foundation of helping to dismantle racism? At the foundation is an audit of these systems. So I talked about the talent management system, and some companies have already been doing this work around gender. So how do we recruit and where do we recruit from? That's part of the, the, the talent management system. How do we design and who has been promoted in our company is another part succession planning. So looking at those talent management, human capital systems, and auditing and looking to see where are the disparities and what is the process? And are there checks and balances? Oftentimes, there aren't any checks and balances, which is why we still have these inequities is important. And then the part that's even harder to do is to audit workplace culture. And so yes, companies have surveys where they say, uh, black and brown employees feel like this place is terrible and white employees feel like it's better, right? Um, but what is lacking is an understanding of how do we make that better? And I certainly have some research that I've been working on for the past two years that is looking at, in some total, there are hundreds of things that some of the more advanced companies have put into place to manage diversity, equity, inclusion. What they are not doing consistently is trying to see what those practices do. And so my research that I've been embarking on for the last couple of years is trying to link all of that activity, all of those initiatives to outcomes. And that's the type of audit-based work that needs to be done on a cultural level in order to help companies advance this conversation. So we're hearing a lot of companies talking about allyship. Uh, and I know your academic home is around building positive work relationships. Uh, and I've heard you say specifically between sort of minority groups and majority groups, or for example, managers and subordinates. Um, can you share some insights, for example, on how a white manager with a black subordinate or a white colleague and a black colleague at the same level, how can they develop a sort of an effective ally relationship given those dynamics? So this is especially timely because I just wrote a piece for Harvard Business Review. Um, the title is something like how to be a better ally to your black colleague. Um, and it actually uses another framework that I developed that predates race and it's called LEAP. Um, and I call it LEAP. I mean, obviously L-E-A-P stand for something, but I call it LEAP because as I've thought about relationships across difference, to me, it's always interesting that, again, this is the anxiety part, so what's the anxiety? The anxiety is, is that if I say or do something wrong, I'm going to 
further damage or completely damage this relationship. And so LEAP is about, I don't want to construct it as a risk that sounds negative. It's also leaping towards opportunity. So how about that? Leap towards the opportunity. And sometimes that requires us to step outside of what feels comfortable. So with LEAP, um, L stands for, uh, you know, listening, looking and listening and learning. So looking and listening and, and learning from your Black colleagues about what their experiences are like. Now, somebody asked me this earlier. They said, well, how do you do this? I mean, I don't want to just walk up to a Black person and say, how are you feeling right now? Or can we sit down and talk about race? And I said, yeah, that's a little threatening, right? I will admit. Um, and so this is where companies come in, um, is, is offering even informal structured opportunities saying, hey, from 12 to 1, we're going to have a facilitated dialogue about race. You are welcome to join, right? Um, I also say that many companies have uh, meetings for Black and Brown employees that are open. So that's a great place to go listen and learn from Black colleagues about their experiences. Research tells us that Black and Brown colleagues are more likely to share their experiences with other Black and Brown colleagues rather than in, in a room that's all white. Um, e is about engaging in these settings. So for example, also an ERG or interpersonally. Um, and I talk about engaging in informal settings. So I just told you the challenges that um, Black and Brown colleagues have with um, having to uh, self-present and sometimes in ways that are stepping outside of um, what they are normally accustomed to, to make sure that they quote unquote fit in, right? And so that tells you that there's this idea that black and brown people feel and the research supports this is that they have to overperform or they have to do more in order to be accepted. And so if you're going to engage in a conversation about race, it should be in a non-evaluative setting, right? Someplace that is casual, someplace where it doesn't feel like the stakes are high or else it's gonna be very hard for your black colleagues to talk to you about their racial experience. A is about um, asking about their work. Um, so uh, research, my research and other research suggests that black and brown colleagues are often asked about their culture, about their race, about their food, about all these things that are not work related by people who they don't have close relationships with. And they're not asked as much about what they're working on, right? And so as we're trying to talk about creating equity, ask your black colleagues what they're working on so that you might be able to see a way in which you can help support. And then the P is actually providing that support, providing that ad advocacy that they need in order to be successful. That sounds like a great framework. We'll have to look that up in HBR. It sounds like a good article. Yeah. <laughs> so I've heard you talk about uh, this idea of resilient hope, and I really liked it. Um, yeah. Could you just explain yeah. that uh, for listeners briefly, please? Yeah, so this is a paper that I'm working on. It's, it's far away from being published. But it, it actually draws on an insight that um, my collaborator, Jean-Pierre Petriglieri, who's a professor at INSEAD, um, had about our experience of hope after Obama was elected the second time. Um, and so Jean-Pierre, just by background, he's a management organizational behavior professor, but by training, he's actually a psychiatrist. So he used a lot of psychoanalytics in, in how he um, thinks about scholarship and teaching. And so his observation was that, you know, people were had this experience of unbridled hope the first time Obama was elected. So obviously those of us who voted for him and were happy about it, right? It was like hope, that was his message. It was really exciting. And then over the next four years, lots of things happened in society. And for those of us who supported him, we were really happy that he was reelected, but we felt like we'd been through some things. We felt like we'd been beat up a little bit 
kicked around, but we were still hopeful about our future. And so this, as I take it to the present, and certainly as I think about our collective experiences right now with COVID, with racism, I think about my personal experiences just in being a Black professional for the last 25 years in a variety of industries. Resilient hope is this experience of ambivalence. So it's having both this positivity that the future can be better, but it's also this there's this underlying discomfort or anxiety or negativity around, I've been beat up a little bit. But in the case of resilient hope, the positive outweighs the negative. So it's this idea that I believe in my heart that things can be better, but I'm not coming at that from a perspective of ignoring how, how hard it has been and how hard it will be going forward. Love that idea. So uh, when the sort of pandemic started, I started this, this tradition of ending the podcast with always with a, a sort of a, a ray of sunshine question. Uh, but before I yeah. get to the ray of sunshine question, I'm going to try something a bit different this time. So earlier, I spoke about Michelle Norris and the, the race card project. Um, so I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Um, I don't know if you know about the race card project, the sort of six words. Um, how would you distill your thoughts, your experiences or observations on race in just one sentence that has only six words? Wow. You know, I'm an academic, right? <laughs> <laughs> that means nothing is concise. So you want me to share my observations So your, just about your, race. your thoughts, your experience, anything but it can only be six words and it has to be on race and identity. Okay. Um, white people are finally getting it. That's a good one. Really good. All right. On to the ray of sunshine question. Uh, what's one positive thing in your life that has emerged uh, from your experience in COVID uh, and the lockdown uh, and the pandemic these last few months? I feel like people are listening to what I am saying and I am becoming a better listener. That is a great note on which to end. Stephanie Creary, thank you so much. I so appreciate your time today. Thank you for your incredible work, all that you do to fight racism and to help educate everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed my time with you. Take care. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.